Today is a special day. It's a special day for a couple of reasons, and both of them, I think, have some important connections, some important themes that resonate in the story that we're going to study this morning from the book of Mark. So, uh, as we've already talked about, it is Father's Day. Uh, it's Father's Day, and, um, you know, in, in honor of Father's Day, I just want to to pause. My dad, my dad's not here with us this morning. Some of you heard, maybe he's in the ICU right now. I was able to be with him yesterday and have a word of prayer. Um, but I, I don't know if he's listening right now, but I just want to say, Dad, I love you. Uh, appreciate you. I'm proud of you. Proud to have you as my dad. I wouldn't be here in a lot of different ways if it wasn't for you. So um, please keep him in your prayers. He sends his greetings. Um, as one of our church elders, uh, and he is—he and my mom are both very thankful for all your love and prayers. He's there. He can have one visitor at a time, uh, in addition to my mom. So, my brothers and my sister and I have kind of cycled through, and I'll go see him again this afternoon. But um, proud of my dad. So, um, thank you for praying for him. So today's Father's Day, and I'm, I'm honored to be able to be here and honor my father by, by being here um, this morning. And um, hope you have a chance, if your, dad's, uh, if your dad's still on this earth, to, to spend some time or give him some words to honor him as well. And that, uh, that theme of family will come up in our, in our story this morning. It connects to our story. Uh, the other reason today's important is it's, it's Juneteenth. Juneteenth, the day where we celebrate the end of slavery in our nation, the day when the, uh, the, the last slaves in Texas, which was the farthest, farthest west state in the Union, finally heard the news that had been sweeping across the nation for a few years after the Civil War, that they were free. And, uh, and that's something to celebrate, a major defeat of one form of evil in our country. And God's campaign against evil in our world today is a major theme that resonates in our text. So I think this, this fact that this year, Juneteenth and Father's Day kind of all coalesce and um, some important things that I'm thinking through just happen to, uh, to come through in our text this morning in the book of Mark. So um, I'm glad we get to explore some of these things. These are things we celebrate. We celebrate our fathers. We celebrate our family. They're important to us. We celebrate the campaign against evil in the world. We celebrate when there are victories against evil as the people of God. But what I want to I I take a, a little bit of time just to reflect on what happens when you don't feel those victories. What happens when you might feel kind of alone in your work? alone in your ministry, when the things you're doing, you're working for, the things you believe in are, are called into question by those around you. What happens then? These are things we all wrestle with. These are the things that, that uh, our Lord Jesus himself experienced during his time on earth with us. And as we'll see in our story this morning, when Jesus faced opposition in his ministry on a number of different fronts, his response is an invitation to us as his people to reflect on how we are to act in circumstances like that. 
How should believers respond when we face opposition in our ministry? When it feels like we don't have someone on our side, when it feels like the world is against us and against our faith. How should believers respond when we face this, this opposition? I'm not sure what you have going on, but we all, we all experience these things, and we'll, we'll talk about a few examples as we, as we go through our story this morning. How do you respond to the attacks that come against you from the world, and sometimes even from those who are close to you? As you know, we've been going through the book of Mark. Um, Pastor Clint's been taking us week by week, and we are now in Mark chapter 3. And we're going to be looking in Mark chapter 3 at verses 20 through 35 this morning. Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35 is where our story comes from. So uh, we'll just go through the story first, and then we'll take a little bit of time talking about it. So after Jesus chose the 12 apostles, he went home. And once again, such a great crowd came around him that they were not even able to eat. And when his family heard about it, they went out to get him because they said, he's losing his mind. He's going crazy. The scribes, the religious leaders, the teachers of the Jewish law that had come down from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by a demon named Beelzebul. It's only by the power of the prince of demons that he's able to cast demons out. And Jesus called them to himself, and he began speaking to them in parables. He said, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom's divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. And if a family is divided against itself, that family's not able to stand. If Satan casts himself out, then he's divided against himself, and he's not able to stand, but he's coming to an end. Yes, no one can go into a strong man's house and plunder the strong man unless they first tie him up. And once he's bound, then you can go in and plunder the strong man. Surely I say to you that any sin that any person commits will be forgiven him. Even the blasphemies that they speak will be forgiven, except if anyone blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, this person will never be forgiven. They've committed an eternal sin. At this point, Jesus' family arrived, and they stood outside the house, and they sent a, a message in to Jesus through the crowd that was gathered in a circle around him. And the crowd said to Jesus, your, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And Jesus said, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For anyone who does the will of God, this is my mother and my sister and brother. That's our story from the Word of God today. Let's take some time to unpack it and consider some of these things. There's some difficult things to wrap our minds around here, so let's just talk through, through these things a little bit. What are some things that, that might pop out to you in this, in this story this morning? Anything strange, unusual, anything weird? Think about it. What do you notice? 
First thing you might notice is that this is not actually just one story, is it? It's two stories. They're intertwined. What are the two stories that we see here? There's the story of Jesus and his family, right? His family coming to get him, saying he's crazy. And then there's the story of Jesus and the religious leaders, the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, who are opposing his ministry. So there's two stories actually here. And in fact, when Pastor Clinton and I first started talking about what, what I should preach on when he's gone, we were thinking of, of, of just doing one story, uh, ending in, in verse 30, and then he might do, uh, uh, go through 35 when he comes back. But I said, uh, Pastor Clint, I, you know, I don't think I can stop there because if, if we look at this, these two stories stand together and they have to be told as one. And the reason is because of the way it's formatted. You notice how the story begins talking about Jesus' family. Jesus comes down from the mountain after appointing the 12 apostles and his family's heard about these things he's doing, these great crowds that are following him and they think, who does this guy think he is? He's going crazy. We got to bring him home before he, he shames us all right? It starts there, and then it shifts gears, and we hear him talking to these scribes, these, these folks who came from Jerusalem, and then at the end of the story, it goes back to his family. They show up. You know, it's, it's a sandwich. It's a sandwich. Uh, it's called, a, uh, I call it a Markin sandwich, because Mark likes to do this. There's about six different times in the book of Mark where he, he combines stories so that they're read together, and you can understand both of them better by reflecting on how they, they talk about each other. There's the story of the, um, the, the, uh, when a man comes to Jesus and asks Jesus to come heal him, and then on the way, there's a sick woman who touches Jesus, and they stop and talk to the sick woman for a while, and then he keeps going and heals the man, uh, the, the man's uh, daughter at his house. There's, uh, there's, there's a number of these. Uh, there, the technical term is a literary intercalcation, but I, I like to call it a sandwich because that's what it looks like to us, right? So just remember, uh, Mark especially likes to do this in the Gospels. And this is the first Markin sandwich that we get to enjoy in our, uh, our feast of the book of Mark. So what does this sandwich teach us? What do these interrelated stories uh, have to tell us? Is there a common theme you can observe here in both stories? That's the first thing to ask yourself. Is there a similarity that both of these things might, might talk about something similar? Any common theme you see? You notice the beginning of the story. Both parties are bringing some accusations against Jesus, aren't they? His family thinks he's crazy. We've got to get him out of here. And the religious leaders from Jerusalem say something similar, but they don't say he's crazy. They say he has a demon. He's possessed by a demon. So we shouldn't listen to him. So let's talk about these accusations um, and, and go through them a little bit. We'll, we'll first talk about this opposition from the religious leaders that he experiences from, the, uh, from, um, from Jerusalem. And then we'll go on to talk about the, the opposition from his family. So Jesus has been doing these great signs and wonders. We're in Mark 3, and we've, we've read from the very beginning how, how the word of Jesus' ministry has grown, and people have gotten more and more excited. Great crowds have started following him. In chapter 2, we begin to hear hints of some 
a little bit of, of um, people questioning. Well, who is this guy? What's he doing? And uh, where is this power coming from? In chapter 3, it really starts to, uh, to, to take on full force, where we see a lot of the religious leaders after Jesus calls into question their beliefs about um, rituals and the Sabbath day. They get so mad that they're starting to look for excuses to do away with him. So this opposition against Jesus has been mounting. And now he's been up on the mountain um, and, and he's appointed his followers and given them power and authority over demons. It's worth noting from our text last week. And then he comes down from the mountain and experiences this head-to-head opposition with the religious leaders. Now, where is Jesus right now? He's in the region of Galilee. This is kind of a, a backwater, rural, you know, farming-type area. Uh, they had a saying, can anything good come out of Galilee? Um, that was Jesus' uh, home stomping grounds. And what we see here is that word has finally reached the capital city of Jerusalem. And these individuals, these scribes, have come down from Jerusalem. Some of your Bibles say scribes, others say teachers of the law. These were the keepers and interpreters of the Jewish tradition, the law of Moses. These were the people everybody looked up to. And when there's a question like this, and they hear of this messianic figure working his way through the towns of Galilee and announcing the coming of the kingdom of God and the good news, they've got to send somebody to go check this out, don't they? And so they send some scribes from Jerusalem up in the mountainous hill country, and it says they go down, they've gone down to Galilee to check out this, this burgeoning movement. And what do they find? How do they respond? If, if they give their thumbs up here, this seal of approval, this will mean some great things for Jesus and his ministry and the way he's received. But instead, and we know they've already kind of made up their minds against him from the earlier stories in chapter 3, they're looking for a reason to do away with him. So they start saying to people, hey, this guy's not legit. All this stuff he's doing, he's healing the demons he's casting out, he's in league with Satan. It's only by the power of the prince of demons, who they called Beelzebul. Beelzebul um, uh, was a, a term, it's related to the, the, the god Baal in the Old Testament. Um, the god Baal, which meant Lord. And Beelzebul, or Beelzebub, was something that the Jewish people, looking back on this this, this ancient tradition called derogatorily, they called him, he's, he's the Lord of nothing but the flies. He's the Lord of the flies. He's a demon. And the Jewish people rejected this, this tradition of Baalism and, um, and associate it with Satan himself. Rightfully so, right? They've been purged of their idolatry and, um, and they want nothing to do with Satan, with idols, with demons. And they accuse Jesus of being in league with these powers of the underworld, as we might say. He's in league with Beelzebul, and that's where his power is coming from. That's where his strength is coming from. They question the source of his authority. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been accused of being on the wrong, the wrong team? of being part of the problem, not part of the solution as a Christian? Think about that. We'll come back to that thought. So they accuse him of this 
He's actually, they say he has a demon. He has Beelzebul inside of him, and he's using that power, and the implication is we should reject this guy. How does Jesus respond? He responds with three different sayings. Mark calls them parables. Three parables responding to this accusation. Let's take a look at them. First of all, Jesus says what he is not, right? What he is not doing is working with Satan. And he does this by pointing out the ludicrousy of their suggestion. How can Satan fight against himself? They might say, well, Beelzebul is fighting against Satan, but Jesus points out the demons aren't going to be fighting against each other. The satanic forces of the world are in league with one mind against God and his people. And Satan's not going to be squabbling within his own kingdom. There's no power struggle going on here within the, the, the kingdom of Satan. This is ludicrous. No more than a family that's divided against itself and feuding can accomplish anything. That family's going to fall apart. Or a kingdom that has civil war. There's no, there's, there, there's no political future for that. They've got to deal with it before they can get anything done as a nation. And so that's, that's the, the ludicrousy of the scribe's suggestion. Satan's not fighting against himself. That wouldn't make sense, he says. That's the first parable. He points out the, um, the, 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 the craziness of Satan driving himself out. Second parable. He talks about this strong man, right? No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder him unless you... Tie the strong man up first. So who is the strong man here? That's the key to understanding this. You think of somebody plundering a house, you say, well, that's a bad thing, so must be talking about a demon going in and messing up somebody's life, right? That's, that, 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 that could be a common understanding, but that's not actually what Jesus is saying here. In this context, he's talking about the defeat of Satan. And he's saying, he first said what what he isn't doing, and now he's saying what he is doing. He's saying, I am, in fact, plundering the kingdom of Satan. That's why Jesus is here, right? To undo the works of the devil, to rescue humanity from the evil that has enslaved us and that oppresses us. That is Jesus' mission. He's here to defeat evil, to defeat Satan, and that's exactly what he's doing here. He is tying up the strong man, casting out the demons, so that he can perform his great work of salvation. So Jesus says, I am not in league with Satan. I am binding Satan. I am tying him up so that we can defeat his dominion. In other words, plunder his kingdom once and for all. Elsewhere, Jesus teaches, he said, um, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus established the church in order to storm the gates of hell and defeat evil in our world. And so he says, I am not in league with Satan. I am plundering Satan in his kingdom. I'm putting him to an end. He is coming to an end. And then, thirdly, he talks about the forgiveness of sins. And this is important because it's an important piece of his victory over evil. Anyone can be forgiven for any sin they've committed. 
And that is wonderful news. God offers forgiveness to all of humanity for anything they've done. God is reconciling us to himself. God desires to have a relationship with you, and he offers that to you. So that point should not be forgotten in the confusion about this second statement that he says. Any sin except for what? What cannot be forgiven? Blasphemy. Specifically, he says, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. He says, any blasphemy even that you commit. A blasphemy is a, uh, basically a, a, a word against someone, a word dishonoring someone. In this context, it's not against one another, but against God. Even if you blaspheme God, the Father, God the Son, it's insinuated, you'll be forgiven. But what about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? A few years ago, when I was working at the Bible College in Alaska, um, I got a call one, one, uh, one afternoon in my office. And it was from a random lady that um, you know, I had never met before. She had no connection to the Bible College whatsoever, other than the fact that she was looking for help. And she got this number for a Bible College and thought, there's maybe somebody there can, can help me. And she said, I, 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 I'm afraid that I have committed the unforgivable sin. I guess in her anger or frustration or something, she had spoken a word against the Holy Spirit. I don't know what exactly she said. She didn't want to tell me the specifics, and I didn't push her, but she was gripped by fear that she had committed this unforgivable sin and could not be forgiven anymore. And so I spent about half an hour on the phone here, talking her through this passage and what Jesus means by this unforgivable sin. And the end of, um, at the end of the day, I just tried to encourage her that if, if, if you're afraid that you've committed the unforgivable sin, then that in itself tells me that you have not committed it yet. Because you are still sensitive to the work of the Spirit in your life, you're sensitive to His conviction, and you want to be made right. That was the encouragement I tried to give her. This passage should not cause fear to a believer. Okay? Because we need to affirm, first of all, that forgiveness is available to anyone. What is this unforgivable sin that Jesus talks about? What's going on here in this passage? It's not, he's not talking about, oh, if you just say the wrong combination of words against the Holy Spirit, then God's going to zap you forever. That's not what's, what's going on here. And that's not what the, the, the scribes were doing either. They hadn't actually even mentioned the Holy Spirit, had they? So why does Jesus bring up the Holy Spirit? Well, the scribes had questioned where Jesus' power was coming from. Now, where do we know Jesus' power came from? Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit empowered Jesus in his work and allowed him to accomplish great things even as a human walking among us. The Holy Spirit was with him. We see at key points in his ministry. The Holy Spirit, in fact, Jesus teaches in John 16 verse 8, is the agent that God has sent into the world to convict the whole world of sin and righteousness and judgment. You see, none of us could trust in Jesus and recognize our need for salvation and turn to him in faith if the Holy Spirit was not in the world working to convince us of that need. Because we're lost in our trespasses and sins, aren't we? 
But God gives his spirit and the spirit works in our world to get our attention. He works in our hearts to make us realize our needs. And he's alive and active and working. And he was working through Jesus here in Jesus' ministries of exorcism. These ministries, these great things Jesus are doing, that's the Holy Spirit working to convince the people that God's kingdom is here. He's doing what he always said he would do. He's here fighting against evil. He's here to storm the gates of hell, finally establish God's reign on earth. It's good news. It's the gospel. And the Holy Spirit vindicates that through these miracles that Jesus is doing. And what do the authorities do? They reject it. They refuse to acknowledge what the Spirit's really doing. They refuse to acknowledge their own spiritual need and condition. They're resisting the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, and in doing so, Jesus warns them they are in danger of missing their chance for forgiveness. If you, in this life, resist that work of the Holy Spirit, convicting you and drawing you to God and to faith in himself, there's no hope for you. The good news is you have a lifetime, and the Holy Spirit doesn't give up on people. But this is a warning from Jesus against these Pharisees. If you continue in this path, you will not be forgiven. If you do not open your eyes to what the Spirit's doing, or rather allow him to open your eyes, you'll be forgiven. you'll be committing the unforgivable sin, resisting the work of the Holy Spirit in the world that is meant to draw you to faith in Jesus. The only forgivable, unforgivable sin, put simply, is a life of consistent, entrenched unbelief, refusal to accept the salvation that Jesus offers. So we need to listen to this message too. There's some people who say, oh, we, could never, we could never commit the unforgivable sin today because this was something unique to Jesus' own day and age and these particular scribes and the way they rejected the, the, the ministry and said he was possessed to a demon, but we can't do that today because Jesus isn't here doing the same thing today. I would disagree with that. I wouldn't go that far. Now, Jesus isn't here today, but the Holy Spirit is still alive and working in our world convicting of us of sin, righteousness, and judgment, John 16, 8. And if we don't respond to that, we are unforgiven. So if you're here today and you haven't accepted that forgiveness from Jesus, that relationship that he offers you, that's the number one application of our story this morning. Stop resisting. Embrace Jesus by faith. He has done the work on your behalf. It's not about what you do and doing the right thing and avoiding the wrong thing and trying to gain God's favor. Jesus embraces you for who you are, and he's paid the price for you. So all you have to do to accept that is trust in that message, and you become one of him. And that's the invitation that's, that's incipient in Jesus' words here. He's warning the scribes, but he's also inviting the people around him, right? There's a great crowd to think about. Whose side are you on? Because house divided itself against itself cannot stand. You're either with me or you're against me. Whose side are you on? That's the first accusation against Jesus, demon possession. Then there's the issue of Jesus' family. As he issues this warning against blasphemy... Warning the scribes, 
and inviting the crowd to reflect on their own spiritual condition, his family arrives outside. It's so crowded they can't even make their way into the house. They have to stand outside and send a message in to Jesus. Maybe a little boy who can kind of run through the, run through the legs and, and let him know, Jesus, your, 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 your mom's here. Sorry. That's basically what it sounds like, right? And how do you think Jesus feels here? How do you think he feels? Kind of ashamed? Like we might feel when it's time to go, you know, you're at your friend's house and your mom's here. Oh, man, you know. He's not doing anything wrong. It's not saying that he's done anything to be ashamed of, but the shame of, my mom doesn't really believe in me. My brothers think I'm crazy. His own family is out to bring him home and kind of shut him up because they're afraid of the sideways looks that are going to get him. They're going to get out in the, in the marketplace. They're afraid of people's whispers. Ah, you hear what Jesus did? You hear what the scribes are saying about Jesus? They're afraid about the social rejection and ostracism. How do you think Jesus feels? Have you ever felt that way before? Felt alone? Felt out there? Like you're, you're doing the right thing, but not even your own family believes you or supports you. We've been there in different ways. Side question, where's Jesus' dad? It's Father's Day. We're talking about Father's Day. Where, where's Jesus' dad? Why is it his mother and brothers that show up to get him? We don't know. We don't, in fact, we don't know what happened to Joseph after Jesus was about 12 years old and he got lost in the temple that one time. Jesus, Joseph doesn't show up in the stories anymore after that. Most likely, Joseph had died by now. He'd passed away. And that's why it's his mom that has to, you know, go grab him by the ear and, and rein him in. Because that would have been, you know, Joseph's job if he was here. Most likely, Joseph spent his, maybe his teenage years, later teenage years, without a dad. Uh, Jesus spent his teenage years without a dad. How do you think he felt? Lonely? And you wondered, well, <laughs> what would dad have thought if he was here? Rejected? Abandoned? How does Jesus keep going in this situation? Well, he says, I have a family. And it's not the human family that God gave me that may or may not accept me. We know from later stories that his family eventually came around. His mother Jesus there was at the foot of the cross when he died. And his brothers, such as James and Jude, became some of his greatest supporters and even wrote some of our later books of the Bible after he was resurrected and went to heaven. It kind of opened their eyes, I guess. Oh, you know, he wasn't crazy. <laughs> but in this, in this moment, in this, in this instance, he's feeling rejected, but he says, hey, I've got my true family right here in this room. He spreads his arms. You can imagine, these are my mother my brothers, and my sisters. He's careful to include the women as well. My true family supports me in doing the will of God. Notice again, an invitation to his supporters, his followers, to join him in doing the will of God. What is the will of God here, contextually? No, it's not about deciding which college to go to, or who to marry, or um, what job to take. The will of God here is to oppose Satan and his forces of evil in the world, to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. That's the will of God. And my mother and my brothers is anyone who joins me in this work, who accepts the forgiveness of sins that I've just offered and joins me 
in this work. So who are your mother and brothers, truly? I hope that there is a close in correspondence in your family, your, your, your biological family and your spiritual family. You know, I mentioned my own dad. I'm following in his footsteps up here. He's the one that set the example for me to follow in, and I'm thankful for that. But we don't all have a godly man to thank for our legacy, and we need to acknowledge that too. But Jesus promises you a family nonetheless, a spiritual family. So let's apply this a little bit. Taken in the context of this battle against evil, he's inviting his followers to join him in defeating Satan. So how do believers respond when we face opposition in ministry? Going back to our opening question, how do we respond when we feel alone, abandoned, associated with all the wrong things? Two points from the two groups that Jesus interacted with, right? The scribes and his own family. First of all, from his interactions with the scribes, Jesus teaches us to remember whose team you're on. When the world comes against you, when the world accuses you as a Christian of being associated with all the wrong things, you hear a lot of that these days, right? Oh, you Christians, you're just hateful and you're out to get everybody and you're out there to make everybody follow your rules and it's easy to start feeling, oh, really? Am I, am I the bad guy? Am I, on the wrong, am, am I in league with the very evil that I want to work against? No. Remember whose team you're on. We are the team that offers forgiveness to anyone who will receive it. We are the team proclaiming the good news, the defeat of evil. We are in the world working against evil and working against Satan. And his defeat is assured because who's on our team? The Holy Spirit himself giving us that power just like he gave Jesus. It's kind of like, you know, if, if, if the, uh, the St. Louis Cardinals showed up here at ABC Ballpark to, to, to play against a little league team. Who, who's going to win in the end? It's going to be the Cardinals. And I'm, a, I, I'm reminded of a scene in my favorite move, one of my favorite movies as, as a kid. We, we like to watch the movie Beethoven. It's about this, this family that adopts a big St. Bernard. And, um, and there's a scene in the movie where this little boy, he's kind of a scrawny kid, is always getting picked on at school. And the bullies show up at the bus stop and are shoving him around. And he finally, he finally gets up the nerve and he puts up his fists like he's going to fight. And what he doesn't know is that his St. Bernard, Beethoven, standing behind him, you know, baring his teeth at these bullies. And he's standing there ready to fight. And the bullies get real scared. And, oh, he looks, he, looks, he looks pretty mean. And they run away. You don't come back. And then the next scene, he's, he's flexing in his mirror like a, you know... Who's on your team? Who's going to assure the victory? We're not alone. We're not on the wrong side. So plug into the Holy Spirit's power. Read the Bible. Remember your mission. Remember what you stand for. Be willing to stand up against evil. And be ready to offer this message of love and forgiveness and reconciliation that we as Christians are all about. We're not here to to tell people how to gain God's favor by doing this and not that. That's not what we're here for. We're here to offer a message of love, of God's love, 
and reconciliation to him and to one another through the power of Jesus on the cross. That's the message of the church. That's what we stand for. Be ready. So remember, remember whose team you're on. Look for ways. Make your life about standing against evil and offering the good news, the message of Jesus to those who will respond to it. We have plenty of opportunities to do that in our city, in our world, and everywhere. It's very easy for me to, uh, you know, in my translation work, working with a, a tribe in Africa that's mostly Muslim, and I start having these conflict, these, these thoughts that accuse me. What are you doing? Giving your, your time and effort and energy to translate this ancient text into a language of people who really don't care about it, and all it's going to do is cause more division and strife and conflict for this community. What are you doing? That's the enemy accusing me. What am I doing? I'm offering a message of forgiveness and reconciliation to a community that lives in fear, to a community that would seek to oppress particularly women and others who don't line up with the way they want them to live. And what I see is this message taking root and offering hope to people and offering deliverance from fear and offering families to those who have been cast out of their family for not lining up. And I see the power of God working and I remember whose team I'm on. Whose team are you on? So that's the first. The first, um, remember whose team you're on when you feel that opposition. Second, is remember that you're not alone. Remember that you're not alone. You might feel alone sometimes. You might feel like the voice crying in the wilderness. You might feel like nobody's on your side. You, know? you might miss your family sometimes. Some of us have been cast out of our family for what we stand for, for what we believe. But you are not alone. God has given you a spiritual family. Look around you. This is your mother. This is your sister. These are your brothers. He's given us one another. I remember those lonely days when we were in Alaska. I remember our first Christmas in Alaska. You know, we had our little, little Christmas meal. It was um, me and Katie and our, our two kids. Our daughter had just been born. The days are long and dark and cold. Uh, the, the nights are long and dark and cold. And we had our Christmas meal and, and looked around and it's like, oh, that's it. That loneliness, missing our family far away. But you know what? God gave us a family in Alaska. God surrounded us with like-minded believers who, um, who rallied around us and supported us in those lonely, lonely Alaskan nights to the point where we, we today, we, we sit around and say, I, I miss our Alaskan family, our spiritual family. And that's what the church offers you. That's what our partnership in the gospel. You are not alone. So find opportunities to connect with believers. Again, I can apply this to my own work, working from home, you know, down in the basement all the time. My wife's always pushing me to get out. You gotta, you gotta see other people. You gotta connect. It's when I don't connect with you guys, when I don't spend time with especially believers, people who are like-minded, who can support me in this work, that I start feeling these feelings of accusation from the enemy, of questioning and, and putting me down. And it's the connection with my mother and my sister and my brothers spiritually that God gives me 
as well as my Heavenly Father that is able to keep me going. And it's the same for you as you live the Christian life. You know, if you're not experiencing opposition in your life in some way, shape, or form, that's probably a challenge to you to think about. What are you, what are you, what are you, what are you investing your life in? Because if we're seeking to follow Jesus truly, his way of discipleship, not just, not just accept his message of salvation, but truly follow him with our lives, join him in the fight against evil and the proclamation of his kingdom, we will face opposition. We will face loneliness. But the ministry of Jesus here reminds us that we're not alone and that the Holy Spirit's on our team. So my challenge to you is what, which side are you on? Have you received the Holy Spirit's offer of forgiveness? Jesus' work on the cross has defeated evil. It reconciles you to God if you only accept this gift by faith. So first of all, make sure you've received that gift. And second, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are his disciples, remember you can't do it alone. You can't do it alone. Align yourself daily with the power of the Spirit by plugging into his word and joining him in his work in the world and partner with your fellow believers around you for support and encouragement. Find opportunities to connect and encourage others, whether they're fellow church members or fellow believers in your neighborhood or what, to encourage them in the struggle that we all face as God's people who still live in a hurt and broken world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this message. We thank you for this reminder from Jesus that though we face opposition in the world, Though we face loneliness and may feel like people are working against us and we're the only one, that's not true. We have your spirit inside us, empowering us, just like he empowered Jesus in his ministry. We're on the winning team and we're resisting evil in the world. Make us agents of reconciliation who will proclaim this message of love and forgiveness. And Lord, make us sensitive to those around us. May we not try to work as lone wolf Christians, doing our own thing, forging our own path, because we can't make it on our own, Lord. May we plug in to the spiritual family that you've blessed each one of us with. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.